You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. We've got our good friend, researcher, co host, Cam Robinson, Camulus Robinson, uh, on the uh, line on the Zoom. So, if the sound sounds a little bit different than some of the earlier ones, why we're we're doing the best job we can uh, to get a, get you all a good sound. I, I think it's pretty decent. Uh, Cam has come up with a, a really interesting story about really, I guess, would be a basically a le- an illegal wiretap. You know, the FBI ran a whole bunch of wiretaps back in the uh, 40s and 50s on up to the 60s until 1968, and then they made wiretaps totally illegal. Uh, with the uh, Uniform Crime, uh, Omnibus Uniform Crime Control Bill, I believe was the name of it. That's a mouthful, isn't it, Cam? So, but you could do wiretaps back then. You could put bugs in. You just couldn't use it in court. Nobody would let you use it in court. And and we're going to get to that. But first, let's lay the groundwork. Let me give you a little bit of an overview of Cam's notes here. Uh, Frankie... The Gray Carbo. I wonder how you got that nickname, The Gray. Did you ever stumble across that? I, you know what? I looked at I, I, the only thing, every photo I could find, he was he was wearing all gray. I think he yeah. grayed his hair early, but that's all I could find. <laughs> he just loved those gray suits. I see what you right. mean. Maybe just like gray suits. You never know. He was a Lucchese soldier who came up through Murder Incorporated with Lefty Bookalter and he got involved in the fight game early on in the, in the uh, what, the 40s, late 40s and early 50s after the war. And Albert Anastasia was dead and murdered incorporated during that time uh, by the late 50s was, was totally gone. And, uh, you know, and he formed a national boxing club. He fell in with another guy called uh, Blinky Palermo. There's a good one. He probably blinked a lot. His first name was Frank. Frank Blinky Palermo. It was from Philadelphia. Now, they're going to form this national boxing club. And they, you know how mob guys are when they get into something. They got to they gotta control everything and mm-hmm. everybody in, in order for them to make more money and more money and more money. And if anybody you know, doesn't go along with the program, they've got their own way of enforcing their rules. But uh, they made a fatal mistake is what we're going to get to. They went out to Los Angeles and, you know, they were used to dealing with maybe Chicago PD or uh, New York City PD. Well, Los Angeles has always been a little bit different. Uh, yeah. Back into those times, those times, they uh, they were even probably even Kansas City PD in in the fifties. We, we were a bit shaky when it came to the mafia, and, and <laughs> uh, been enough of those old timey reports to realize what was going on here, but. Uh, LAPD didn't have this mob, you know, systemic corruption connected to the mob quite the same as, as these Eastern, more Eastern police departments did. And, and they had, they formed a little special unit like the unit I worked in, the intelligence unit. And they, and, uh, they you know, if you remember some of those uh, with the Mulholland Falls, uh, Nick Nolte, I think maybe he was in it. Right, yeah. That was a kind of a murder mystery, but. But those and then guys, the uh, L.A. Confidential. The L.A. Confidential, you know, it kind of depicted that early intelligence unit. Uh, 
uh, what do they call it? it? Had another name for it, didn't it? A gangster squad or something like that? Yeah, that, that was the that was the the what they called it uh, to the side. Yeah, the gangster squad. The gangster squad, and, and they'd take these guys that get off the plane and they'd get a tip on them coming out to L.A. and they'd take them up to the top of Mulholland Drive and throw them off the side of the mountain there, <laughs> and you know they'd go rolling down. Is my understanding? I don't know how much truth there is to that, but. Uh, and, and they'd say, now get your ass back east, get your ass back to Chicago or, or New York or wherever you came from. And, and actually, Las Vegas PD did that uh, for a while. Uh, then modern times hit, and you can't do that stuff anymore by the 1970s. <laughs> time I came on, you can't play those games anymore. In the 60s, you could. In the 50s, you definitely could. So, uh, but that's what this story is about. That's kind of an overview. Uh, Cam, uh, who were some of the fighters that these guys were involved with? They had some named fighters, really nicely, uh, uh, well-placed fighters. A lot of what a lot of people, uh, the, probably the best known is is anybody who's seen the movie Raging Bull, the, the Jake LaMotta character. That was Blinky, Blinky Palermo really staged that the LaMotta Billy Fox fight that's portrayed in that movie. They later on would get involved with Sonny Liston. I think a lot of people are familiar with, with Sonny Liston's career. They had him for pretty much his, his entire heavyweight fight. Uh, but I think where you really see is around the 1940s is when they really started televising boxing. That was about the time that boxing and, and television crossed paths as television was picking up. And so that's when ad revenue and a lot of money really started crossing paths. And that was about the time they, they formed the IBC and they, they had some kind of a deal with Joe Lewis, which is how it got formed and how they got so many boxers to sign up. But by the height, they were really controlling the entire boxing world. And that's, that's where you see, they actually had uh, uh, it was a Sherman antitrust act that broke it up, but they controlled all boxing across the country. So it was small boxers, uh, uh, all weight divisions, uh, when I say small, I mean who, not necessarily title fights, but if you wanted to box in the country, you had to go through Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo. That was across the board. They owned boxing and they partnered with, with all families across the country. So the, and that, that's up to the, the Ali fight basically with, uh, with Sonny Liston. They, I didn't see that one spoken of specifically, but Sonny Liston was mentioned in the, in the, he was their big, he was their big dog, their big catch. Yeah. He, he was, uh, he was really well known and he was known. It was kind of common knowledge that Sonny Liston was on a little bit shaky grounds personally. And, and he was connected to the mob guys. So that's, that's interesting. The, uh, of course, as you get into this kind of thing, People start noticing that there's these mob guys that are involved in this, and they're they're going to uh, somebody's going to go to the government, the Justice Department, mm -hmm. department, the Justice Department, start investigating in the early fifties, and uh, actually they ruled this. He's uh, called it was called the International Boxing Club. They ruled it. It was a monopoly. They were monopolizing everything, which is that what's uh, that's what mob guys want to do. They want a monopoly. <laughs> uh, you know, there's restraint of trade, you know, you get them under FCC rules or something under restraint of trade. And, and, and that's how they are. You got to line up under them. And they actually, uh, actually got some convictions. Looks like Carbo got two years in 1958 for fixing a, a welterweight fight during that time. And 
So they were, they were all over, but you know, these guys are not going to quit. That's uh, around the time they got hold of Liston. Uh, they, they started, they, they kind of reached out to LA. There must've been a, a pretty decent uh, group of fighters in LA that they wanted to get to. Plus there's a huge population after the war, there's a huge population explosion in Los Angeles. And, and so uh, all those returning servicemen that came back from uh, Japan or the Pacific, they stayed in the West Coast, a lot of them, because the weather's so good and they'd been based out there. So there was a lot of men out there, a lot of, of demand for this kind of entertainment. And they moved out there. That was kind of, uh, that may have been the beginning of the end. They got involved with this uh, Dan Jordan. So what, what was the deal with him? Well, they started having to reach out to, to fighters individually instead of reaching out their, their sort of tentacles across the, the boxing world. And instead of having others do it for them, because they broke up the monopoly, they had to be much more individually involved. And so that's where you see them. That's, that's where Carbo and Palermo started going out and doing a lot of things on their own. And so they, the welterweight champion at the time was, uh, was this, Dan Jordan, so they wanted to get a piece of him. They wanted every everybody who had a title. That was that was where you make your money. So they see this guy. He's in L.A. and uh, they figure they're gonna they're gonna reach out and get a piece of get a piece of Jordan. And I looked him up. He was you know impressive record and and he was a good fighter. So they're gonna go out there and they're gonna get a piece of him in L.A. They know that there's a, a fight promoter out there, a guy named Jackie Leonard, who has been around the boxing world for a long time. Leonard knows who they are. He knows not to, to play around with, with Palermo and Carbo. If you were in boxing back then, you knew who these guys were and you knew that they had the, that they had things sewn up. And so you didn't, you didn't tell them no. So they reached out to Jackie Leonard and he right off the bat tells him, yep, I'll give you 15%. And uh, he was as a promoter, he didn't necessarily have the the power to do that, and uh, Jordan's managers were not were not especially pleased with him for for agreeing to give fifteen percent oh, really? without without consulting with them. Really? Now you know, moving to L.A., uh, you got a, a whole new set of, of mob mm-hmm. structure to deal with, and uh, Jack Tragna and, and Mickey Cohen were the men out there, and you would you can't just go from. New Jersey or, or New York city and just slip into a city and start doing right. things like that without working with them. Uh, how did that work? Did they, uh, uh, did, did they get a connection up with them? Or they, they did. They, there was a, a, a guy out there, uh, Joe Sika, they called him JS and Sika had early on, he had had bad relations with, with, uh, the LA family. Jack Dragna had asked Sika. He was he was a New Jersey mobster. He was not. There's it's sort of bandied about whether he was a made guy. I think that he was not. And Dragna asked him when he moved to Los Angeles to kill Mickey Cohen. And Joe Sika knew that Cohen was the big money maker, and Cohen was tied in with a lot of the the East Coast people, and, and he was tight with Chicago. So Co- so Sika said he was not going to kill Cohen, and. So Dragna was not happy, but once Jack Dragna died in 57, the LA family came around and Joe Sika was making a lot of money with, with gambling. He had a lot of the Jewish bookies under him for, because he had supported uh, Cohen. So he was making a lot of money. He had the fight promoting out there. He had uh, some narcotics and he had uh, a, a huge gambling book. 
So he was kind of the guy that you would go to out there for gambling. And so when Carbo and Palermo, that would, would be who they would reach out to. And then Sika took it to Louis, uh, Louis Jack drag, uh, uh, Tom Louis Dragna, who was, uh, the underboss consigliere. There was sort of a ruling panel. The, the, the boss was, was Frank Simone, but there were three top placed guys out there. And so Sika reached out to his boss, Tom Louis Dragna and Tom Louis Dragna gave it the okay. And that was how they made their move. Carbo and Palermo then had permission and they involved Sika because he was the local guy. And so they were able to move forward. So they, uh, uh, you know, they're moving forward. Of course they want to fix fights. They want to make all the money they can, but, uh, Leonard did not deliver for them, is my understanding. Right. Once. Wait a minute. This Jackie Leonard. Yeah. Let me take that back. Jackie Leonard was a fight manager out in LA, right? It was connected. He, yeah. He was, he was a, a, a local promoter. Okay. And so, as, as promoters did have a, a piece of the boxers out there, but they couldn't really speak to them. The managers had the uh, the managers had the final say. And he had he had made some agreement with Carbo, right, and Palermo, but uh, he didn't really got the okay from uh, Jordan's managers, right. Right. He he agreed to give him fifteen percent. And uh, once Jordan's managers, a guy named Don Nasith and Jackie McCoy, they they weren't going to share with this guy with anybody. And like I said, they were like like you like you said, they were West Coast guys. The mob was not especially strong out there, so they figured, no, we're not sharing with anybody. We certainly not not to a couple of East Coast hoods, and they figured, no is no, we're not going to share. And that would be the final say on the matter is, is we're just going to turn them down and we're just going to go about and we're going to do our thing. I think that they were probably, uh, they certainly didn't know what they were doing when they, when they just figured no was going to be all it said. So Jordan then has to, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Leonard has to go back and tell Carbo and Blinky Palermo that I know that I initially gave you 15%, but his managers have said no, so I cannot deliver on my initial promise to you. He now, no, no, yeah, <laughs> he, he now has to tell the mob that he initially agreed, but he can't deliver. Yeah. And you know, you know how those mob guys are. They don't care what your problems are. Right. You can't get these other people on board. You told us that you would give us this piece of this action, and now you go make it happen. And if you don't, then we're holding you responsible. They're not right. going to go around and go after some of these other people that they don't even know. They, they know this guy. And so they just going to pressure him. And, and of course they do their usual mob stuff when he can't deliver. They got rough. They, he was walking to his, in his parking garage and they, he was attacked. They, they beat him so badly. He had a, a concussion. He was in the hospital while he was in the hospital. His house was firebombed. He was getting phone calls at all hours, you know, threatening him, threatening his, it, it, to the usual, usual spiel. But he was, he was hospitalized for a concussion and, 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 you know, the normal course of events, his house was bombed and, and they just, they were really going in on this guy. Carbo's headquarters were in, was in, uh, uh, 
Miami. So he was doing a lot of threatening from Miami. And I think they reached out to some local guys. They had Joe Sika, who would have been the local muscle and was, was acting on their behalf because he was going to get a piece of their action. So Sika was, was a traditional mob guy. He was a tough-spoken New Jersey guy. So I think he was probably helping them out in some of their endeavors. Yeah, more than likely. Well, now, Leonard, here's where LAPD intelligence comes in. Right. Uh, Mr. Leonard goes to LAPD. The, the chief at the time was, uh, what was his name? Parker. Uh, he right. Was, he was a hard ass. Oh, no, not Parker. Parker was before him. Daryl Gates. Darryl Gates. Yeah, Gates was uh, in the uh, intelligence division at the time. He, he, Parker was the chief, and Daryl Gates was the head of intelligence. And right, he, right. He will go on to be the chief. Okay, I got you now. And, and he was a hard ass, you know. He had been the kind of guy that, you know, take those mobsters up there at the top of Mulholland Drive and drop them off. He, and tell he them created them. the SWAT team. Yeah, yeah, right. He did, didn't he? Uh, he he's also famous for uh, talking about uh, uh, using the uh, the arm bar, what we used to call the arm bar, or a uh, neck restraint that, that cut off the air straight across the Adam's apple. And he was famous for saying, well, you know, a lot of black people are dying from that, but you know, their necks are different than yeah. than everybody else's. Like, oh boy, that was a, that's, that was kind of the end of his uh, uh, tenure as the chief of police. But that's right. That's right. Saying that today, oh god. That's right, and that part of his actions uh, that, that was the lead into the L.A. riots. Yeah, it was. He was he was a hard ass. That's for sure. Here's an interesting little thing I see you you dug up here. They once had Joe Cardo and Sam Giancana. And Ricardo's doctor flew in and they called a press briefing. The intelligence unit called a press briefing. They <laughs> probably did because he never met a camera he didn't like, I understand. And, and advised them that the mob was not welcome in Los Angeles. And right. I, saw, I saw that happen with some Kansas City guys went to uh, Florida to play golf. Uh, Cork Savella was one of them. I can't remember the others. Uh, Tuffy might have been. And, and the police and the newspapers or the the local tv station met them at the airport and mm. they turned them around and said you know you guys gotta leave you're not coming to kansas city so i mean to uh, uh florida at all i it was miami i'm sure the airport they were going down to play golf most of the guys weren't even bob guys that were with them i think they really were going down to play golf <laughs> they could they could stick a little business in there on the side i'm sure using that as a cover but uh you know la has a this is not a mob friendly town no this point no and and they are all over these guys they find out about them and uh what else did they do they uh the gallows a couple of uh guys associated with the gallows had tried to send out start some rackets out there with the la guys and they they got uh they they were setting up some basic rackets some some extortion rackets uh with with a local guy a couple new york guys louis castiglione and uh mike rizzatello who would eventually move out to la and a local guy, Anthony Zurica, I read the case. They, they got them for robbery and kidnapping. Really, they just walked into the bar and uh, and held them all at gunpoint while they robbed the place. And then they left, but they got them for robbery and kidnapping. And so they got they got long sentences. I mean, I mean they, uh, 15, 20 years for that because they call that robbery and kidnapping. That was you rob a place, armed robbery. But they really, really laid them out because they didn't they didn't play. Yeah. So that was how LA sent a message. They told they told uh, Carta, "We don't want you out here." Like they said, they got him off the plane and called the press and said, "Here's here's Cardo, the boss of the Chicago family, and we don't want him out here." 
Palermo got in trouble at the airport once before for stealing 80 cents worth of candy and they, they arrested him and, and, and find him and threw him on a plane. So yeah, like you said, LA just did not, did not want these guys out there. You know, and they're one of the early, early ones to use wiretapping on a local right. basis. They were one of the early ones. They were early adopters of everything. Like Bill created that SWAT team long before any other police department created a SWAT team. And they also created something. They were uh, integral with the, uh, Colorado, I'm Colorado, with the California, uh, it was a state department of criminal justice uh, Cali for California, and they created something called LEIU or law enforcement intelligence units. And, and they made connections with all the other intelligence mm -hmm. units of the major cities across the whole United States to share information about these guys. And, and, and they were real integral in that. And they, and they were, like I said, they were the first ones to use wiretapping of any local department and they they maintain close uh connections with the fbi were the early ones to do oh, that yeah. too where the fbi just did not work with any local people at all before la was one of the first ones that did that uh they uh they're part just like all intelligence units and ours was this way they were also connected to internal affairs That's right. they, they would give us any criminal cases possible criminal cases against policemen, Kansas City policemen, they would hand it to us. They wouldn't hand it off to, uh, you know, whatever unit it might have been. Uh, I remember one time, quick story, this guy was, uh, he was a district guy and he was a pedophile and he would stop, we got a report that he would stop these 14, 15 year old kids who were on some kind of probation. And uh, it was funny, <laughs> as we used to say, man, you know, I want somebody to do that to me. He would offer to go down on them and they would like, ah, you know, and, and how many, how many he did that? I don't know, but he was doing that. And one of the kids went to a parole officer, a probation officer, and they came to us. So we set that guy up. We put this kid out in a place in a quick trip and we had the policeman go down there. We gave him, we gave him a call to go down there and meet somebody. And of course there's not, there's nobody down there. But he gets down there and he sees this kid, so he starts talking to him and he makes make arrangement makes arrangements to meet him after he gets off. And the kid says, Okay. So we couldn't really put the kid, he was too young to put him in with the policeman and try to work undercover and get a a, a statement out of him, wire him up. So we just kind of blew it off that night, but we we took video of this guy. And uh, of course we didn't do any wiretapping. This was after 68, but we took video of this guy down there. And we called him in the next day and with internal affairs and we had this videotape sitting there on the desk. So I started talking to him and explained all what we knew and what he'd been doing. And he probably ought to think about going ahead and resigning and, or, and then he just reached over and touched that videotape with the old big old BHS videotape with that guy's eyes. I wasn't in the room, but that guy's eyes went. Could not cut off of that tape. He didn't know what was in that and what he'd done. And and he decided after about an hour or so that he'd go ahead and resign. Right. <laughs> That's LAPD intelligence and, and they go in on this case. So uh Carbo wants to meet with Ben Jordan and and talk about this thing and and uh, what happened then? By this time Dan Jordan had, uh, he went to the LAPD. He said, I, I need help. I can't deal with these guys. They're, they're, it's going to get bad. He knew they had already attacked him. And so the LAPD sets up a, sets up a wire. Like you said, I don't, I don't know the, the legality of it, but 
and they they he knew they they had, they had beaten the hell out of him and and had been making threats. So they I believe they had wired up the phone, and they may have picked him up making threats because I've got a couple quotes. He said, you know, you're going to get hurt. When I mean hurt, I mean dead. They wired up these his office and they set up uh, tape recorders and miniature audio transmitters. Now this is 1959. So these little miniature transmitters, they parked about a block down the road, Carbo and Palermo and this Joe Sica came to meet them. And I I initially thought uh, Dragna, but he was not there. So they come in and they did let him know that they represented, uh, that they represented uh, Dragna. So they're in the office and they're threatening him. They're telling him what's going to go on. And this is where you get this great quote from, from Joe Sika. It's Sika is a real street guy. And he, he tells him, see what they do. They use a water pipe. See, you know, regular lead water type pipe, lead pipe about that short and about that thick. And they get an ordinary piece of newspaper. See, newspaper don't show no fingerprints. And then they take it. They wrap it up just like a newspaper. See, and you're sitting there in a crowd and they try to give you two bats and they kill you with two if they can. And <laughs> But they split you twice in the skull, and they knock you unconscious. Then they just drop the pipe wrapped in newspaper in the crowd, and nobody knows who did it. <laughs> that's uh, that's right up there that's with gold. And that's Morgan. right. And then where he says, "You know, I'm just one guy. You know, you can send one guy to jail. What are you going to do? You can send me to jail, but I'm just one guy." And then he just leaves it. And then he, what did he say? He said, uh, "Said you say you're seventy two, and you don't have any problem. You know." If you want to see 73, then, you know, you, you got to do something here, man. <laughs> you, you know, uh, you say, you know, Alan's not that kind of guy, Alan Dorfman. Alan's not that right. kind of guy. But, you know, the piece, the people that have a piece, Alan, they are that kind of they guy. They are that kind of guy. <laughs> so that, that see, that's what they're going to do. See, they, it's that's right out of the movies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That guy probably got it from the movies. Right. That's like Nick Savella. We have two different examples of him wanting to intimidate somebody and he puts him, sets him down in a room and he puts a light, uh, uh, one of these, uh, uh, like your living room light and, and just shines it right in his eyes. Uh, and, and then stands out of that cone of light back in the dark and then it, and then threatens him. So I, I think he saw that in the movie too. <laughs> he spotlighted him. <laughs> looks like Kennedy got in on this and the, and the feds got in. Yeah. Yeah. They, they turned that, like you said, they turned it right over to the FBI. Yeah. So they, they uh, charge both Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo in federal court end up getting them quite a little bit of time for uh, extortion, I would imagine. Yeah, it was it was 25 years. And, you know, this Appalachian had just happened, at, you know, two years earlier. So it, and it, they fought it for a while. I think it was 1961. They got sentenced. But two, Appalachian was basically a year and a half fresh in everybody's everybody's mind. Uh, by the time I went to trial, it was 1960, 1961. So Kennedy was just in there and he right. was, he was, he was still, still angry from the McClellan hearings. Remember he was the chief, chief uh, investigator and he was, he was the, the guy in McClellan. So he was really chomping at the bit to get these guys. Uh, you get uh, Carbo and Palermo get, I believe 25 years. Sika got a 20 year sentence. Louis Tom Dragna, who wasn't even there, he got a five-year sentence, but that was then they, they later appealed it. And he 
his was reversed on appeal, but the rest of their convictions held up. And when you read about some of the old documents, Kennedy, he, he touts this, I've got a lot of publications, you know, contemporary publications of this time, and they, they tout this as a regular, as a, as a really, uh, a real victory against the mob, an early, an early win. And so these guys, these guys had a lot of time. They, they did part of their, their sentence at Alcatraz before they shut that down. And Carbo got sick. They released him in 1975 and he died in 76. I think he had some kind of cancer. Palermo went back to Philly in the, in the seventies. He got a piece of a boxer then, but he served, they, they both served their time in Lewisburg on that mafia row where you see a lot of the, a lot of the mob guys. And that's immortalized in the movie. Goodfellas. That's, yeah. that's mafia row. He gets out. He tries to get back in the boxing world and of course, the public catches wind of it. Everybody catches wind of it. He tries to get his, his his managing license again, and that all falls through. And so that's those two went the uh, went the way of the dodo. They didn't. Uh, they never were able to really get back into things. All right. So that's. Uh, I think we've done Frankie Gray Carbo and Frank Blinky Palermo. Would you say? I, I think we've knocked it out. All right. I think we have. Cam, I really appreciate it. You know, Cam, uh, tell the folks what those, uh, you've got some websites going, there's some Facebook pages, you've got some other things going. Where, what else you got going you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working with a couple guys. We, we interviewed Gary not too long ago. We've got a, a Facebook page, The Underworld, Killers, Kings, and Clowns. We're doing some, some YouTube interviews. We've gotten a couple really good ones, and uh, you can join our Facebook page. We're working on a podcast also, and, and a couple other things. We'll have a mob publication out sometime in 2021 and really trying to really trying to get some really good content out uh, we inter- like I said we interviewed Gary and he really he really helped us out a lot so uh, I'm, I'm trying to get some get some writing out there for people but join our group the underworld killers kings and clowns it's uh, we, we get a we got a lot of great photos up we're focusing on Chicago right now we'll eventually do the the Northeast and and New York and uh, Boston Providence area. So join us out. We got incredible photos up there. Yeah, you do. You have some, have some great photos. Cam's really done a lot of work, uh, research for this uh, thing. And they, they're doing Zoom uh, Zoom uh, calls. They interviewed uh, Frank, uh, interviewed me, but they interviewed Frank uh, Calabrese. Yeah, Calabrese. We got the, the we did the, the Seifert brothers and we're, we're we're trying to get a couple. I talked to Frank. We're going to try and get uh, a couple guys. You've done Di Donato and Kenji Gallo. So yeah. uh, we've done. We're we're trying to get a, a few things together. The uh, lead investigator for the Chicago Crime Commission eventually. So yeah. yeah cool. Yeah, that Kenji Gallo and uh, and Andrew Di Donato. They're great interviews, man. Right. <laughs> they're dynamite. Yeah, you did a hell of a job. <laughs> they were good ones. Uh, I. Uh, 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 so I highly recommend this, and uh, y'all know what I've got. I've got a little. Uh, I've got a little thing that you'll know, listen to me promote all my stuff. We get down here. So, Cam, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews, so you can see what my guests look like. Uh, in real life. Uh, also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I, uh, I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content. So if you want more 
mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each uh, podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, some uh, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and link them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and uh, listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. That corruption thing kind of stopped in Kansas City after the, uh, I mean, we had it up in the 50s and that endemic, we had commanders that, that came up, you know, through the ranks and been in vice and been involved in, up in the 50s and the early 60s. And we got this new FBI chief uh, or FBI uh, agent uh, who retired and then became the chief of police. And he really sidelined a lot of those guys that he found out who they were and sidelined a lot of those guys. And, uh, but, uh, you know, L.A. just never really had that that kind of a thing. It's more of an individual basis. You're an individual officer, which you see that today, you know, the the, the, the Ramparts uh, right. station where they were, uh, two or three of them got together, and one of them was, you know, they were just going after individual drug dealers. They didn't really have any kind of organization of them, and there wasn't any real organization to go in and, and and had your dad's dad had not been paid off by the mafia, like you know, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Because police families are, you know, a lot of the kids and grandkids go into the, the, the business and then they're helped out by promotions and, you know, good jobs because their dad was here and their father right. was there. And, 
uh, it's like Blue Bloods. And you guys ever watch Blue Bloods? Well, that's kind of a common thing. Uh, you got, you know, one person has gone on up in ranks and then they take care of the other family members, the sons and the brothers and take care of them. And, and, and you know, that really is when you when you got this kind of basis of corruption, anyhow, being involved with the, the mafia way, it's uh, just makes it a lot easier to keep to, to have a lot of control over police departments. That's right. Oh, I, I see um, Jimmy Fradiano, you know, what I was thinking about, he ends up testifying, coming in and testifying around 1980. And, and you know, he started in the 50s. He was involved. I guess he somehow he stayed out of this because if you remember, that's how he uh, earned his bones or made his bones. He killed those two guys from Kansas City for the... Uh, family out there, uh, the two Tonys, Tony, um, uh, oh God, I hope I forgot. It was it Trombino, Trombino and Tony Trombino and, uh, Tony, uh, Gargada, I think. Yeah. It was kind of a That's right. name at the time. And, and he killed those two Tonys and earned his bones doing that. And he was, he was real important, but he had actually, he then kind of got a transfer out of the LA family. If I remember right to maybe Cleveland or, uh, back east somehow he did a lot of yeah he sort of came back came from cleveland he went to chicago for a little yeah, bit when, he, he did a lot back in the midwest before he uh, turned right his evidence went in the program so he he pretty much brought the last of uh, la down which there wasn't really that much to it anyhow they were just they could never ever get they didn't have that basis in that sicilian neighborhood right and, and big, you know, large group of extended family and people that had all these Eastern cities had. Right. Right. And without the, without the endemic corruption, I mean, I, I'm LA had corruption, but not at, not at the lowest level really that, and, and not LA corruption just wasn't like a place like, right. like Providence or, or Boston or New York or, or Chicago. So they didn't have that support system. So really all they ever had were, were just some, some street crime. 